Of course, when we, when we dream, we want dreams that are realistic. Like the, the guy who, who said nine years ago, I invited the woman of my dreams to marry me. Uh, and, uh, and he said, she said no. Then last year, I invited the woman of my dreams to say, uh, to marry me, and, and she said no. And I asked her yesterday if she would marry me, and she said no. At a certain point, you, you recognize you're not a dreamer, you're a stalker. Uh, we don't, we don't want dreams that are unrealistic or beyond our grasp. Uh, and, uh, we want dreams, I think, that are actionable, like the person who is being interviewed. What's your dream job? And he said, well, in my dreams, I don't have a job. We, we want dreams that make us work, that, that we can take steps, action steps. We also want dreams that in some respect or another can, are, are just clear, okay? We don't want things that are easily misinterpreted. Like the mom who said to her daughter, sweet dreams, and the daughter started crying because she was a diabetic. Uh, we want we want dreams that are easily understood. We want dreams that are realistic. We want dreams that are actionable. And we want dreams that are that are not beneath us, okay? Like the kid who dreamt he wet the bed, and, and he did. Okay, some dreams should not come to pass. So when we come to Jesus, he doesn't disappoint because the, the dream that he has for his followers, for his people, and that would be us, it, it's it's really actionable, it's, it's realistic, it's clear, it's lofty. And for those of us who are also believers, we recognize that the best dreams are the dreams that we have conviction come from God. And so that's what we've been doing as I've been talking about, you know, Vision 2025. I've wanted you to see that this is actually rooted in the, the dream or the vision of God for his people. This is nothing new. This is basically 2,000 years old. I'm just trying to couch things in terms that are, you know, reasonable, realistic, actionable, easily understood, lofty, and really ultimately from God. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started talking about the vision for Main Street Baptist Church being that we would be uh, a humble church that gets after it. And so we spent an entire Sunday just talking about what does it mean to be a a humble church, and we looked at verses 46 through 56 of Luke chapter 9, and we saw that a humble church entails at least these five things, that there are no big shots, humble church has no big shots, it corrects or confronts the condescension, it's welcoming, it makes room especially for the young, and then it fights consistently against its own pride. That's all biblical. It's from Jesus. Then last week, we started thinking a little bit more clearly about what does it mean to be a church that gets after it. And we saw that a church that gets after it, first of all, it's all in with Jesus. It endures patiently and it's fearless. And all those things go together. Today, we're going to talk about the last three qualities or characteristics of a church that gets after it. And that is it it follows without delay communicates the kingdom of God, and doesn't look back. And that's what we're going to just spend some time thinking through uh, this morning as we wrap up this little series, Vision 2025. Now, with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
Then Jesus said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those in my house. But Jesus told him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. May God bless Reem's word. You may be seated. Now, last week we spent some time looking at the first of the, of the three men. And we saw that this first fellow who says, I'll follow you wherever you go. He's an idealist. That is, he's committed more to commitment than he's committed to, to Jesus. Uh, and, and sometimes we get a little overexcited. He's the idealist. He, he jumps right in because he underestimates the severity or the difficulty or the suffering that is entailed in the kingdom of God. We looked at that last week and, and we saw really th- the first three things. Being all in with Jesus isn't being all in with being all in. Being all in with Jesus is being all in with Jesus. And that always is going to entail a patient endurance and a fearlessness because there's always suffering involved with Jesus. That's why he says, if anyone wants to come after me, they've got to deny themselves, take up the cross daily, follow after me. Our Lord was all in on you and me, and we don't know why. It's a love that defies logic or explanation. And when he was all in, he endured patiently, and and he fearlessly went to the cross because there's this recognition that the that the kingdom advances through death and through suffering, and then of course subsequently through resurrection. And as Jesus goes, so too go the followers. And we covered all that last week, but today we want to look at the second fellow and the third fellow because they're basically representing the same thing. Uh, they are both pragmatists. That is to say, the reason they're hesitant to follow Jesus is because they've got these practical concerns, okay? On the one hand, you've got the guy who says, first let me go and bury my father, and the other one says, first let me go back home and say, and say goodbye to those in my house. And on both cases, in both instances, they are reluctant to move forward because delay. There is a, a, a delay. And that brings us to the fourth thing with regards to a church that gets after it. A church that gets after it follows Jesus Christ without delay. Now, I want to spend some time looking at both of these fellows, and we'll kind of come back to them on the subsequent points. But I want to say, Jesus says some things that are really, really hard, and that makes Jesus hard to take. And on this occasion, I just want to say, let's make sure we understand Jesus correctly because let's not make him, let's not make Jesus any harder to take than he already is, okay? Because people will come to this passage and they go, wait, is Jesus being unrealistically difficult? Is he being ob- obnoxiously being careless with this person? Is he really that lacking in compassion that he would tell this fellow, don't go to your dad's funeral? Is that what's going on here? Is he being unrealistically uncompassionate? Well, no. Okay, you say, well, how do you know this? Lots of things. First of all, I want you to notice that this guy who is telling, to whom Jesus is saying, follow me, this guy is walking with Jesus. He's not just walking with Jesus metaphorically. He's walking with Jesus. He's traveling with Jesus on the road with Jesus. And what that means is this man's dad's funeral isn't this afternoon or he didn't just die yesterday. Otherwise, he would not have been walking along with Jesus and so it is a wrong interpretation to say, oh, so your dad's funeral is this afternoon. Sorry, you can't go. That's not what's happening here. Now, before I press into what is more specifically happening in this passage, I do want you to notice a few things here with regards to followership. First of all, this man, man number two, like man number 
three, like man number one, they're all following along with Jesus, but they're not followers. There are a lot of people who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and they listened to Jesus and they were Jesus friendly. You might even say they were fans of Jesus, but they weren't followers. Just because people were hanging out with Jesus didn't mean that they were followers. That's why one of these guys who's walking along and traveling with Jesus and walking with Jesus, he says, I'll follow you. And then Jesus says to another person who's in the party, follow me. Well, I thought we were following you. Well, there's a difference between just hanging out with Jesus and following Jesus. Now, Jesus is very comfortable with people who like to hang around. In fact, I would say he's even somewhat comfortable with those who want to kill him. Now, he doesn't want to give his life up prematurely, not in accordance with the will of the Father. But Jesus always had people around him. Some of them were antagonistic. And there were a lot of people who were Jesus-friendly, who were open to Jesus, who were fans of Jesus. But Jesus knew that they were not followers. And these people who were not followers knew they were not followers. Jesus doesn't turn to one of the guys and say, hey, follow me. And he says, hey, what do you mean? What do you think I'm doing? The people in and around with Jesus, they knew if they were all in or not. They were not surprised when Jesus said, follow me. They knew the difference between hanging out and following. And and I just want to make this clear to those of us who are here. One, we ought to be very open to people who are just hanging out. That's fine. If you're here and you're investigating, I'm glad you're here. If you're Jesus-friendly, I'm, I'm happy you're here. In fact, if you're antagonistic, I'm happy that you're here. If you're a fan of Jesus, that's fantastic. We're glad you're here. We're all open to that. But we also all need to understand that just because we hang around churches or like hanging around other people who like hanging around Jesus or just because we like being with other people uh, who are all in with Jesus, that doesn't mean in of itself that we're a follower, okay? So Jesus says to this person, you know, follow me. And uh, the man says, well, first, you know, let me go bury my father. Now, what is he talking about? If it's, if it's not, you know, today, what is the man referring to? What's, what's he actually saying? Because he should have just been walking with Jesus if the funeral was happening that day. In fact, according to the law, if your dad's about to die, you were actually required to be there, if at all possible, at the deathbed. And back in Jesus' day, whenever somebody died, they were buried the same day. They don't do like we do it. I mean, we have certain things that enable us to not have to worry about decomposition. And I think it's fine if we say, we'll put it off a week or two till all the family gets here. I'm just saying in Jesus' day, that's not how they did it. The body died and it was in the ground a few hours later. So this, we're not talking about an immediate burial or the immediate death of his dad. So what's he saying? Well, first let me go bury my father. There are a couple of options here. They're both really good options. I don't know which is which, which is actually the truth. They could both be legitimate. Uh, one option is this man is saying to Jesus, Jesus, in accordance with this custom, and there was a custom of moving the bones of my father at the one-year anniversary, I, I want to stay around until I do that. Because after a body died and it was put in the tomb, on the one-year anniversary of the death, oftentimes the, the, the bones of the deceased parent would be put in a receptacle of sorts to make more room in the tomb for other family members who were going to be buried. It was just part of what they did. So maybe he's asking at, at most for a year delay. Maybe what he's asking, and I kind of lean into this one, I think probably what he's asking is, Jesus, let me, I want to follow you, but first, can I wait till my dad's gone? I don't want my dad to die. I'm just not so sure that he would be all on board with me following you. And I don't want to lose my inheritance. I don't want to lose my family standing. 
And, and so I've got these family obligations, and I'm under the authority of my father. And so after I've buried my dad, whenever that happens, then I'll follow you. So whether he's asking for a delay until the point of his father's death or whether he's asking for up to a year to move the bones of his father, certainly what he's saying to Jesus is, I want to follow you, but not yet. I'd love to follow you, but not now. It's very similar to the second person, obviously, because the the other gentleman says, okay, first, let me go say goodbye to those that are at my house. He's asking for a delay, okay? Both of them are putting conditions on followership of Jesus. I'd love to follow you, if only. I'd love to follow you, but first. Which I need to dig in a little bit more to the, to the third man who says, let me, let me go back home and, and say goodbye to my family. And then Jesus says, hey, uh, nobody who puts their hand to the plow is, and, and then looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God or fit for the kingdom of God. When you put that plowing response together with, let me go back and say goodbye to my family, you will see, scholars have seen, a direct correlation between that engagement between Jesus and this potential follower and the great prophet Elijah and Elisha over in 1 Kings chapter 19. Let, let me read that passage to you, and you're going to see the obvious connection. It says, Elijah left there and found Elisha. Now, Elijah's this great prophet, and he finds Elisha, son of Shaphat, as he was plowing. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was with the twelfth team. So Elisha has a lot of land. He's got a lot of oxen. He's plowing one team, and there's probably 11 others working the other 11 teams of oxen. So he's, he's got quite the agricultural business going on. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. That's the moment of invitation that comes from Elijah to Elisha. Elisha left the oxen, ran to follow Elijah, and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother. And then I will follow you. Go on back, he replied, for what have I done to you? In other words, Elisha is telling him, and it sounds kind of cryptic to us, but he's just saying, this is between you and God. Just make sure that you go and, and do what you need to do, and then come back. Be sure you come back. So the request to go back and say goodbye to the people in the house, and then Jesus' response with regards to plowing, which typically was done with oxen, it, it's very much reminiscent of the exchange between Elijah and Elisha, the invitation that Elijah extends to Elisha. Now, the, the question that we have then is, okay, Jesus, why didn't you, like Elisha, say, okay, go back home and say goodbye to your mom and dad and then come back and follow me? Why didn't you do that? And the answer is actually profoundly simple because Jesus is one greater than Elijah. Consistently in the New Testament, there are these comparisons between John the Baptist, who was supposed to be in the spirit of Elijah and Jesus, and then there are these occasions where Elijah shows up, like on the Mount of Transfiguration and all the rest, or Jesus is compared to the prophets, and Jesus presents himself as one greater than Elijah. Remember the question that Jesus asked the disciples and says, who do the people say that I am? And they, and they say, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the great prophets who's, who's come back, who's returned. And Jesus doesn't take that answer. He said, well, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. That's the correct answer. Jesus has always known that he's greater than Elijah. And that is to say, sometimes we may underestimate the value of Jesus, but Jesus is never confused on that point. So Jesus will go beyond Elijah. Now let's go back to Elijah. Well, so, so why does Elijah say to Elisha, hey, 
You can't go back home and kiss your mom and dad goodbye. You better follow immediately. Well, the, the reason Elijah doesn't do that is because Elijah is not the king. He's not the redeemer. He's not the savior. And he's not claiming to be. But since Jesus is the king and the savior, that radically changes everything with regards to our followership. What Jesus is essentially communicating is as long as there are conditions, as long as you say, well, I'll follow you if only, or I'll follow you but first, or I'll follow you but not right now, as long as you're saying that, you haven't stepped into the kingdom yet. You haven't crossed a line. You haven't committed. Now, whole commitment is not the same as perfect obedience. You can be totally committed as a husband or a wife, and that doesn't mean you're the perfect spouse. You're fully in on the team. That doesn't mean you make every shot. You may be a wonderful citizen of this country. You're all in on America. That doesn't mean you always obey all of the laws. Commitment, perfect commitment and absolute obedience are different things. But what Jesus does require of you and me is commitment. And, in, and as long as you're saying, well, I do it if only or but first, you're not in. You may have traveled 99.9% of the way right up to the border, but until you have let go of all of those conditions of if only or, or, or but first, until you've let go of those conditions, you're right up to the border, but you haven't committed, you haven't stepped in. Now, if you've been around churches for very long, you know that there are conversations that, that run along these lines of, do you think it's possible that a person could be, you know, a regular Christian and Jesus is their savior. And then there's, you know, the super Christian who has Jesus as their savior and Lord. You know, you, you, you hear these kind of conversations. Hey, is it possible that I could just be a Christian, but just the kind of Christian that kind of barely sneaks in where Jesus is my savior, but he's not my Lord. Uh, and, and, or do I also have to accept Jesus as my Lord too? And I want to say it all runs together and here's why. In the kingdom of God, there are no first-class citizens and second-class citizens. You're in or you're not. And when you come in, there's always progress. And so if we're trying to go, oh, first-class and second-class, well, no. Everybody who's in is in. And everybody who's in is becoming more and more like Jesus over time because obedience does follow from commitment, but obedience isn't the same as commitment. This is actually, I think, really foundationally uh, simple to me, okay? There, there's this uh, early church father. His name is Augustine. He wrote this uh, little piece called Confessions. You ought to read it sometime. And he talks about this, about this girlfriend he has, okay? They're, he's in love with her. He's in love with being in love. It's an illicit relationship. And then he goes to hear Ambrose of Milan preach this sermon. And it's a sermon about the holiness of God and the Ten Commandments and, and the... Augustine is deeply convicted. And then he prays this prayer to God. And maybe you've prayed this prayer. Maybe you pray this prayer all the time. Here's the prayer. God, make me good, but not now. Make me good, just not yet. You know, what is that? That's, I'm Jesus friendly. I'm a big fan of God. But I'm not ready to, to come in. Again, sometimes it gets couched in these terms. Well, can Jesus just be my Savior but, but not be my Lord? And I think that's sort of a weird way of looking at things. And here's why. 
If you say to Jesus, I'll follow you, but not yet. Not if it means giving up my career. Not if it means my dad getting mad at me. Not if it means leaving my field and 12 teams of oxen behind. Whatever is attached to your but first or if only, that's your actual Lord. That's where you're looking for your meaning and your purpose and your joy. And, and that's where you're looking to hold your life together and, and, and fill it with life. That's your Lord. And whatever is your Lord is your salvation. Whatever is your salvation is your Lord. These two things go together. And the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because I want you to understand that when we start talking about, you know, following the Lord without delay, we're not talking about, you know, an optional extra. It sure would be nice if uh, we followed the Lord without delay. But, you know, we don't have to. That's one of several things that we could do or not do. And it's like, no, no, wait. Especially when we're talking about collectively as a church. Our, our will, our choice to follow the Lord without delay is the only appropriate response to the Lord and Savior who is actually our Lord and Savior. Does that make sense? Now, here's the question that that I get from time to time, and that is, okay, how do we as a church determine or discern the will of God for us collectively? Now, other churches do all all kinds of things, and in some churches, the the pastor is the benevolent dictator. And, And if that's how that church operates, that's fine. Dictatorships are very efficient, but most of us don't want to live in China, okay? And I don't think it's necessary or even particularly the only biblical way to do it because you have the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. I have the Holy Spirit. We're all under the same head. And I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. I don't know everything, okay? So there are occasions when we kind of collectively come together and we pray together and we discern together what is it that the Lord would have us to do. And we do this through congregational process that... The process has been agreed upon by the congregation. This is the way we submit ourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. And, and in accordance with the congregational process, sometimes we come together and we have these little things called business meetings. And they, they sound really boring, uh, but they're not. Sometimes there's fights. It's wonderful. You ought to come. Uh, actually, most of the time there aren't. But the idea is, well, we don't have one side against the other. The idea is we're trying to discern together what is it that the Lord would have us to do. And that's how we operate as a church. And once the church determines or discerns what the Lord would have us to do, and we've made the decision, then we move. Once we've determined what it is that the Lord is having us to do collectively, then the meeting's over and we get to work. And so as a church, here's how we're supposed to operate, and here's how we need to operate, and here's how we do operate. You know, the talk happens before the meetings. You know, hey, there's this idea. What do you think? Da, da, da. There's nothing wrong with talking about issues. If you're on that committee or if it's a church-wide, that's perfectly fine. Once we make the decision, that's when the talking stops and the action begins. You know why? Because when we've discerned what it is the Lord would have us to do, the only appropriate response at that point is following without delay. Okay. Now, meetings sometimes can drain energy, and I know that that's the case. Meetings can amplify energy when the meeting actually leads to action. It's kind of like this. Suppose we're all carpenters here, and I know I'm oversimplifying things, but let's just suppose that you're a carpenter, and so your job and my job is pounding nails. Well, 
If you're a carpenter, there's going to be times when you've got to meet with your employees and you've got to meet with the contractor and you've got to lay out the plans and you've got to measure some things and you may have to go to the hardware store and buy another hammer or two. Meetings are a part of life. But a shiny hammer that is only discussed is not going to pound near as many nails as a crummy hammer that's always swinging, okay? There comes a point after the decision's made where we get after it. And so when we know individually, corporately, what it is that the Father would have us do, what it is the Son would have us do, what the Holy Spirit has led us to do, we get after it and do it because that's the only way to appropriately respond to Jesus being our Lord and Savior. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So a church that gets after it follows without delay. A church that gets after it also communicates the kingdom of God. You'll notice that Jesus in, in one of these instances, he says, you know, don't let the dead bury the dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Okay, how do we do that? How do we spread the good news? Now, there's two ways. It's real simple. You know these. You speak it and you live it. Not that complicated. Uh, and we can do this more effectively. It's not the only way. But we can amplify our energy in these things through our website. And it's, not, it's just a tool. It doesn't solve everything. But, but let me explain what I'm talking about. First of all, we do need to speak the, the Word of God. We do need to speak the kingdom of God. We do need to interpersonally share our testimony and the truth of Jesus. But what we're also wanting to do is utilize the, our online presence and the website in particular to link testimonies of people in our church to stuff that will be like on YouTube. And so we want you to give your testimony. And some of you are like, I don't know, I, I'm not so good at this. Look, one or two minutes is fine. Five minutes is fine. Your testimony is not my testimony. It's like somebody else, but you've got a story with Jesus and, and stories about you and Jesus are compelling to people. They're powerful. We'd love to, to have links from our website to your testimony. We're going to start signing people up for these next Sunday. And you say, well, I don't know when I can come. Well, you know, you sign up, we do a time. We, we want to magnify the impact of your life by putting this out there for people to see. Okay, he said, well, my testimony is not that good. You, you, trust me, it's a lot better. When I hear people's testimonies, they're so different and they're so compelling in so many different ways. We want to hear your testimony. People need that. That's number one. The other way in which the website can magnify our impact in terms of spreading the kingdom of God is we want to be a little bit more public or a, a little bit more obvious about what it is that, that God is doing in our lives and through our lives practically. Okay. Jesus said, let your light shine before people that they would see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, well, how could I possibly humbly let everybody know my good deeds? I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But you do need to let people in some way or another see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Here's why this is so important. And, and you know this. Most of you, you know this intuitively if you don't just know, know it. We live in a time where the perception of Christians is we're just a bunch of, you know, uh, personal salvation narcissists who think, well, the rest of the planet can go to heck and we don't care about everybody else on it. As long as I've got my own bus pass stamp to heaven, I'm good. Now, I'm not saying that that's true. I'm saying that's the perception of people. And like we've said before, the problem with perception and reality is reality can actually change a lot quicker than perception. 
Now, sometimes the reality needs to change, but I'm going to tell you, I know enough of your stories and I know enough of the stories of the people in the other service and our involvements in, you know, Matamoris or tutoring or the caring place or meals on wheels or caregivers and all these different things that people are involved with or support to the children's home in Round Rock. I know a lot of the things and I know some of the things that aren't actually on the radar that you're just doing just out of the goodness of your heart with regards to your neighbors and other people around you. I get to see that stuff. The rest of the world doesn't get to see that stuff. And so we want to put it out there. And I think this could be really compelling because for a lot of people who've given up on the church, their access point to fruitful engagement is going to be through the public square, otherwise known as our online presence. Now, how can we put that out there in a, in a humble way? Well, let me, let me give you some examples. Internally, we can communicate with one another. Internally, it would be great if we had members who were able to connect with other members who are doing similar things or members in our church connecting with members of other churches or members in our church connecting with the community at large. And then we would be able to say, okay, here's what, here's what our people are doing. And it doesn't have to be, you know, an, an, an earnest brag moment or a Gina brag moment because it's kind of a little bit anonymous because we're talking about groups. But it'd be great if people could go to our website and maybe see the Main Street Service page and they see all the things that the people in our church are doing. And wouldn't it be great if we were able to, in a, in a clean way, keep track of people's hours. Let's suppose that as a church, our goal is 10,000 hours of service to our community this year. How in the world do we track that? Well, people are individually, you know, connected to the website, and we know what you're doing. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's going to know everything about everybody, but wouldn't it be great if somebody was able to go to the website and say, here's what Main Street's doing, and that's really cool, and I'd like to connect with that, and wow! 10,000 hours or 15,000 hours of service that was rendered through the church to the community at large. I guess that's the kingdom of God come down in people's lives and through people's lives in a very practical way. There is a reason when Jesus sent people out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God that he also empowered them to heal the sick because practically meeting people's needs in practical ways absolutely verifies and provides the appropriate platform for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We want to communicate. We want to communicate the kingdom of God effectively, and we need your help in doing this. Now, you know, I, I talk about, I don't know, what do you call it, coalescence, where things kind of come together at the same time or similar moments. And, you know, I have been praying, you know, Lord, you, you got to help us out. you got to get us where we need to go. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, about three weeks ago, maybe it's four weeks ago, the Fullertons came on board, so we're going to we're going to put full time effort into this website, and we just want to make that our passion. And then, and then last week we had uh, another new member of the ch- church, Sally Loomer, and she's got a real passion for community interest, and and she's got organizational administrative skills. It's like I want to do this. I want to help coordinate and connect people and report these in a positive way. And so, if you get a call from Sally Loomer, don't hang up. And uh, certainly don't use profane language. It's not a, you know, she, she's not a crank caller or anything like this. Call her back. We're trying to get everything all lined up and put together seamlessly so that our testimony individually and corporately will be more powerful to the community around us. that make sense? A church that gets after it does its very best to spread the good news of the kingdom. There's a, a sixth thing. A sixth point, and we'll close on this. A church that gets after it doesn't look back. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I want to say this. I'm going to try to say this as plainly as I can. And I hope this doesn't come across too harsh or anything. I I don't mean it to. 
But it is not possible to move forward with momentum as long as we're dragging the past behind us. And sometimes people need to leave behind their guilt and their shame. For some of you, you need to leave behind your bitterness and regret. For some of you, you need to leave behind those thoughts of missed opportunities. For some of you, you need to leave behind your past victories and your good memories and the good old days. Now, all of our past can be appropriately utilized by God to make us better in so many ways and stronger and wiser. And so our past can be a gift to us. But even though the past can inform us and shape us and God can use what's happened in the past and we're called to remember, God never, ever, ever calls us to live in the past. When we live in the past, we're living in an illusion because the past doesn't actually exist. It's gone. It's not here. And when people are stuck in the past, whether it be good past or bad past or mediocre past, when people are stuck in the past, here's what happens. They don't move forward with Jesus. Sometimes we look back on the closed doors with so much longing or nostalgia or anger or bitterness or resentment that we don't even notice the doors that are opened right in front of us. But when you follow Jesus, you never are stuck in the past. You're always moving forward because Jesus doesn't walk backwards. And I'm saying this to myself as much as anybody. Because like most people, yeah, there are times when I get stuck in my head and I, you know, I say I'm not bitter, but that's just because I'm trying not to be. You know, it's things I get upset about when I think about. Or there might be past victories or the good old days or that year and you get stuck back there. Or you get stuck back there, well, there was this opportunity and we missed it. And opportunity is like, you know, a tide. But it doesn't come in every 12 hours. Sometimes the opportunities, they only come every 12 years. And you kind of know, here's the opportunity. We better take it if we miss it. Well, there might be another 12. Good past, bad past. We have a tendency to live in the past. But the past doesn't exist. And when you're stuck in the past, you're not doing what it is that God wants you to do. And that is to make an impact in the present for the benefit of the future. There's this... Um, this, this piece of history that some of you are aware of, uh, Julius Caesar, of course, was the leader of the Roman Empire. And there's a time when he actually took his army to Britain. And when they crossed the English Channel and they got into Britain, there was a moment where he brought them to the edge of the cliffs of Dover to look down on the water. And when they looked down on the water, they, shot, they saw all of their ships engulfed in flames. He set the whole fleet on fire. They knew we can't just go right back across. There is no turning back at this point. And they had to make a choice. If we're ever going to be where we need to be, we're only going to move forward and it's going to be behind our commander. And they did, and they took over Britain. Now, there's a similar moment that happens in the, in the Bible. It's actually back in this encounter between Elijah and Elisha. You go back to First uh, Kings chapter 19 and verse 21, and here's what the, the text explains to us. Elisha took the team of oxen and slaughtered them. With the oxen's wooden yoke and plow, he cooked the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he left, followed Elijah, and served him. Elijah made it impossible to go backwards. 
Now, now you say, well, that's pretty drastic. It's pretty drastic to give up your profitable farming business. It's pretty drastic to kill your oxen, cook them all. Pretty drastic to burn the ships that brought you to where you are right now. It's drastic. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Jesus is really drastic. Okay, let's not undersell what Jesus is saying here. Let the dead bury their own dead. You go and spread the good news of the kingdom. No one who looks back, who puts their hand on the pile and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You're looking back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. That's drastic. Jesus says, anyone who wants to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up the cross daily and follow me. He's drastic. Measures sometimes seem drastic. But when we do take drastic measures, here's what happens. It communicates something. It communicates something to Jesus. It communicates something to other people in this church. It communicates something to people outside this church. And, and I think as important as anything, it communicates something to you. There is nothing too drastic for Jesus. Any drastic measures we take are always only appropriate for our Savior and Lord when we recognize the value of our Savior and Lord. And you talk about drastic. I mean, look. I mean, he was all in on you and me, and we didn't deserve it. And he endured even to the point of death, even death on a cross, absolutely fearless in everything that he did and consistent and humble. Everything that we've been talking about in terms of a vision for this church is it only flows out of seeing clearly who Jesus is and the drastic measures that he took for you and for me. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Holy Father, thank you for speaking clearly through your word. And we don't have to make things up. We, we know your vision for us. And it's to be like the Lord we follow. So, Lord, make it so that we would be a humble church that gets after it. Show us how to do that. Enable us to expect it. And then, Lord, in the weeks and months and years ahead, as we walk in step with your vision, we pray that it will be fruitful, that more and more people will just come to know you as you are, a loving God who is all in with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand as we continue in worship. I'll be at the back to talk with you and pray with you about whatever the Lord's laid on your heart.